Welcome back to Red, Wide, and Vroom Podcasting. Formula One, IndyCar, and Zeppelin Rallycross. A production of Consolidated Slutheria Media. Podcast disclaimer, for the purposes of this show, I officially know nothing about anything. While my co-host knows something about several things. None of them officially. And that's because joining me on the other line, up from the grave, she has arisen. It is <laughs> Elena. <laughs> I guess this is our Halloween episode. W- w- welcome, welcome back to the land of the living, Elena. <laughs> For listeners who might not be up on what's going on, uh, I had lost my voice earlier this week, and I've been a little bit sick, and I, that's why I'm so, you know throaty and chill to listen to instead of shrill as usual joining Uh, me on the other line it is marlena dietrich (laughs) but i i good good to have your insights on grand prix racing marlena (laughs) Uh, oh so why don't we jump in because we have a number of things to discuss um, good to be back, and good to be back with the topic that bore this podcast into the world, the entry of Andretti Cadillac into F1, asterisk, disclaimer, disclaimer. <laughs> um, so, uh, Andretti Cadillac has had their application approved by the FIA. But to join, listeners. to join uh, Formula One, an FIA-regulated sport, and now all that remains is for them to uh, agree to a contract with the commercial rights holders, known as FOM or FOM, Formula One Management, also uh, known so as that Liberty they Media. can join the grid and. Join Formula One as an all-American team, uh, helmed with a legendary American racing name, and backed by General Motors, one of the great names in all of automotive industry, which they have brought as a new constructor to the table. Elena, what could go wrong? I I really can't see anything. I mean, this looks like a slam dunk, good for the sport kind of kind of thing, right? New team, so more spots for really talented drivers on the grid. A new constructor, uh, bringing another engine supplier in, potentially. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know what? What's bad here? What could what could possibly be an issue now that the FIA has said, you know, you're in. Right, and uh, the FIA evaluated 11 applications, and only Andretti Cadillac met their rigorous criteria for um, moving forward and having their application approved. Um, Now, uh, granted, I I realize that for the existing teams, another team coming in means that there is an additional uh, split of the pie. But when you're already splitting it ten ways, you know, 
one more won't make that big of a difference. And as they've always said consistently, that if you bring in, you know, a real constructor, you know, not like a little Catrum or something like that, but like a an industrial giant, then that brings value to the sport that grows the pie sufficiently. And they all get uh, $20 million up front from the anti-dilution fee. So, so I, yeah, what what what's wrong? Like, what could possibly stand in the way here? So, so I, I, Andretti is uh, presumably uh, Stefano Domenicali is going to be announcing arm in arm with his Italian uh, brethren that they have reached an agreement in the coming days. Is that not what's happened? I'm hearing I'm hearing reports that, in fact, that's not what's happened. That's not what's happened. What has no. happened? I think that what I'm hearing is that Stefano Domenicale uh, has been ghosting his good friend, or maybe not anymore good friend, Mario Andretti. And F1 teams, multiple teams have already tried to poach GM saying, hey, do you want to come join the sport? But not with those Andretti losers. Come join come join us. And there's this, you know, antipathy towards an 11th team. Yes, there is an antipathy towards an 11th team and an antipathy towards Andretti. Uh, and exactly how, how much the balance is cut in antipathy is irrelevant for the cup of antipathy doth floweth over. <laughs> um, we understand that the teams don't want to split of their growing pie, uh, that Haas and Williams, uh, sort of the smallest teams, feel like they just survived, you know, uh, through uh, the hairs on their chinny-chin-chin, and uh, don't want to mess anything up and that other teams just don't want to lose any money however that obviously sounds like anti-competitive activity which the laws of europe and the united states prohibit and especially given that the regular that the regulating body and the current rules specifically allow for up to 12 teams it seems a slam dunk. You know, the competitors won't want another competitor, but the system as a whole has to accept it. But didn't you know, didn't you know that Americans are just overly litigious, yelling buffoons, and Formula One doesn't want anything to do with them unless it's taking their money? Right. Yes. Uh, because there was never any litigiousness in Formula One. Oh, no, not at all. Um, a, an Italian lawsuit was not, uh, used to put, uh, Formula One teams over a barrel, uh, and get Michael Schumacher to Benetton in Eddie Jordan's negotiations with Bernie Eccleston. Formula One is a gentleman's club where gentlemen negotiate things and save the comp, you know. The strife were on the track. Exactly. It's just, you know, 
a classy operation all around and they would never dream of getting the courts involved. And it's just these crass Americans who come in and don't play by the rules, the unwritten rules. They don't play by the rules. They don't listen. They just don't want to, they don't understand how things are done. Right. And they're loud and obnoxious. Yeah. Have we mentioned that they're loud? And really, it's just not classy. <laughs> um, so I I remain an optimist on Andretti Cadillac uh, entering Formula One. For all the pushback that there is, I don't see how um, this doesn't ultimately get through in some fashion unless it is able to be dragged out for several more years. Um, and it sort of dies of inertia. But uh, under the current pressure, under the current circumstances, I, I see it as making too much sense, particularly with General Motors uh, on board. And I, I, as you referenced, multiple F1 teams have gone to GM and said, hey, you know, for, forget Andretti. Do you want to come on board with the real winner right away? And GM, because they had no interest in Formula One until Michael Andretti presented a plan that worked for them, has said, no, it is our bid, Andretti Cadillac or bust. And ultimately, I don't think that Formula One can turn away General Motors. This is the most I have ever liked GM really ever <laughs> i'm trying to think like they've, they've done a couple other notable things in my lifetime that i have liked but like they're few and far between and i think this one wins let's do a quick rundown uh top gm things let's just start one andretti cadillac yeah um and in no particular order I will also put in uh, the Corvette Stingray. Okay, yeah, with you. Uh-huh. What else do we got? Uh, Mary Barra. Mary Barra. Like female CEO, female CEO who came up through engineering. Excellent. Uh, like that. Like that for them. I think I've kind of hit the wall. <laughs> oh, no, the Allison transmissions. The transmissions in their trucks are really good. Ah, gotta love those Allison transmissions. So, in the pantheon of great GM moments, and so, you know, I am optimistic, but I don't put it past Formula One to be clubby to a fault, to a self-inflicted uh, wound fault, and exclusive to a point of doing self-damage. So I don't want to like speak this into existence, so maybe I shouldn't say it, but I have poor self-control, so I'm going to. The, the funniest Don't worry, I can here, edit. <laughs> the funniest outcome here to me would be that, and like, not my preferred outcome, but the funniest, that's, I'm knocking on wood, uh, is Andretti sues to get in, gets in, completely freaking bombs, and leaves the sport within five years. I think that would be hilarious. Uh, uh, 
I think that would be sort of the, the way of the world in motorsport. If they if Andretti pulled a it pulled a Toyota, but it would be really funny, or especially funny if they're leave, in leaving, they sell the team for a massive profit. Oh yeah, yeah. So I, this is not what okay. I'm rooting for. I want mm-hmm. them to join the sport. I want them to stick around. I want a larger grid. I you know want an American team that's actually American, but. Yeah, so let's articulate um, real quick, you know, not just focusing on Formula One's uh, weirding ways, but what we're excited about with Andretti Cadillac. And I I can start by saying that having an all-American team uh, under the Andretti name and even before I got into Formula One and motorsport generally recently, Andretti was a name that I knew, and Mario Andretti was the man. And now that I follow IndyCar, he is so much more the man. <laughs> and, like, the great Italian grandpa that we all wish we had. <laughs> um, I appreciate that they will be... Um, focused on American talent, uh, both driving and presumably engineering uh, throughout, serving as a pipeline and a a breeding ground for American motorsport talent uh, and engineering talent. I think that's the bigger push for me. Uh, I think that, you know, American driver is great. If I think that we're going to end up with more American drivers over the next 10 years, regardless, just because teams are making sort of the very mercenary judgment that it's good for merch sales. It's good for publicity to put an American in the seat. Um, So even leaving them, leaving Andretti out, but I really see it being based in Indianapolis. Uh, I, I see it as a really, uh, critical pipeline for American engineering talent to the top tiers of motorsport in a way that like they there has been in the past for like touring car racing or sports cars but not for open wheel because ultimately IndyCar even though the on-track product is top tier uh, it's not an engineering exercise right like yes you've got to tune your car but it's a spec series uh, yes, there's engine development, but it's a spec series. The uh, Delara DW12 is now, as of last year, I believe, eligible under the rules for a historic racing series license. <laughs> Which I think required, I thought that was like 25 years old. Uh, it's apparently like twelve or something. Okay. For okay. Wh- whichever thing that uh, that oh, journalist was referencing. Road plates. Road plates. You have to be twenty-five years old to get yes. a historic plate. Okay. Sorry. Um. Yes. Um. And let let's not um beat around the bush that this you know this would be good for Americans and provide that pipeline, but it would also bring um a lot of the connections from American very high caliber aerospace and materials engineering 
into Formula One engagement, along with having the um, expected UK base, where they would still bring in a, and have a lot of their talent and resources, because that is the capital of Formula One. And so you would have the ability to bridge those um, industries. And so, you know, not to patronize uh, His Majesty's Royal Air Force, but our aerospace industry is bigger than their aerospace industry. Our defense industry, I mean, is very entwined with our aerospace industry. But yes, you know, say exactly. what you want about it; it is huge, right? <laughs> and it is the like the most advanced in the world, right? And you can decide your value judgments about this. <laughs> yes, indeed. And so there is, without uh, question, to me, a significant amount of value that would enter Formula One through this anchor if they can open their eyes to see it. Um, and not yeah, just worry about, oh, you know, are we going to have a temporary dip? You know, might sponsors on the margin, some sponsors go, hey, we'll go with the American car uh, rather than uh, the Euro car in the American races. Formula One is having ample sponsorship. and the Saudis will not hesitate to continue to bore money into uh, combustion. Uh, you know, n- not in terms of investing in cars, but just combusting their money. <laughs> so I'm not concerned about finding, you know, the next Sebastian Vettel, the next Lewis Hamilton, the next Max Verstappen, right? Like, I feel like those those drivers, someone's going to find them. I'm concerned about finding the next Adrian Newey. And I'm mostly concerned about Red Bull not being the one who finds him. <laughs> um, but I think that's the key value that people involved in Formula One are missing uh, from Andretti entering. Because it's not like these people who start their F1 careers with Andretti are going to stay at Andretti forever. Like, that's if they're, you know, the next Adrian Newey, someone else is going to pay them more money and they're going to jump ship. But that's that's what I think is sort of critical to the sport's success. And like, honestly, we need the next Adrian Newey to like kick the pants off the current Adrian Newey. So I have a whole, a whole spiel about how he should be arrested for war crimes. <laughs> uh, but we will... Skip Re- that revisit that in the off season. So, uh, that that is a good down payment on the latest Andretti Cadillac news. This will be a topic that we will be covering closely, uh, out of interest, out of brand alignment, and <laughs> because we want to. I I want to, however, uh, move on to someone who has a very close and personal knowledge of how Formula One can be an exclusive club that does not value Americans, which is Alexander Rossi, who specifically had 
the head of the ostensible American team, uh, explained to him that American drivers are no good when he was a Formula One driver and who was pushed out of the uh, Ferrari Driver Academy, according to some uh, reports, by uh, other interests. And so, fortunately, he came over and in his first year in IndyCar, won the 100th running of the Indianapolis 500 and entered immortality. But his mortal form this weekend went another sort of transformation. Or not this weekend, but a recent weekend. Elena, would you like to expound? Our boy got married. He got married! Get married, kids! It's great. Marriage is great. Highly recommend. And... What are your thoughts on uh, this marriage and specifically this wedding? So marriage, this marriage, great. They seem happy together. They seem, I I met Mrs. Rossi one time. I was real weird and she was very lovely. <laughs> um, I told her that I recognized her from her dog's Instagram, which while true is a weird thing to say to someone. <laughs> um, but uh, the wedding, so... She's Canadian. She's from Toronto, I think. He is from California. They live in Indianapolis. Where do you think their wedding took place? Was it New York City? It was New York City. Which... A famously practical place to have a wedding. Yeah. And, you know, it's also famously easy to do such things in places you don't live and where mm -hmm. you do not have family. I mean, maybe they have family there. I don't know. Uh, it seems like a lovely event. Uh, lots of pictures online, lots of video. They seem very happy. It, there were a couple things about it that I thought were a little weird. Uh, number one, it seems to have been, like, the seating seems to have been a wedding in the round. Yes, thought, thank <laughs> you. Preach. Like, I thought this was just a thing we did with theater, and honestly, not that many people do it with theater, because it's, like, really hard to pull off well. <laughs> so... It was a wedding in the round. I have obviously I have not seen the full video of the ceremony, but I can't imagine that was it weird from some angles. Yes, and I I, I would just say I likewise thought that that was a very odd choice. It was clearly in like a tower office venue that was just blank and assorted with chairs and draperies, and they were in the round, which. I think makes sense if you're a member of the Bruderhof Anabaptist community <laughs> or other traditionally worshiping in the round uh, faithful. However, for what appeared to be a pretty secularized, Americanized, glitzy wedding, it was weird. Yeah, it was a lot. So that was number one. Uh, number two is I sort of have a, a bug up my butt about uh, people dictating what guests wear. I feel like it's very reasonable to give your guests a dress code, right? Black tie, mm -hmm. black tie optional, cocktail attire. Like these are very reasonable things to tell people. Uh, I think 
it's also very reasonable to tell your bridesmaids and your groomsmen what they should wear, right? You say either buy a dress of this color or you will wear this dress, whatever. That's normal. We're all for it. What's odd is telling all of your guests what they have to wear, or even even if it's just you must wear black. And so I live I live across the street from a park, and I see a lot of wedding photos going on in this park because it's, I mean, it's pretty. So why wouldn't you? Um, and about a month ago, I saw a wedding where all of the bridesmaids were in black, and the bride was in a white dress. Well, the groomsmen were in black suits and the groom was wearing black pants, but his jacket was white. And I commented to my husband, wow, that looks really tacky. And he was like, oh, I don't know. It seems fine. I was like, no, I think it's like really ugly. Um, so Mrs. Rossi, I assume it was her. Apologies if this was uh, Mr. Rossi's doing. Uh, established a dress code for the wedding, which is everyone must wear black. So like men wore black suits, white shirts, black ties, women wore black dresses. And I'll give her credit, it did not look as tacky as the bridal party that I saw across the street. But it bothers me on a dictating the outfits of your guests level. And also, just like a why, that's so boring. And also, I would note, all black is a funereal sartorial code. It is not a celebrative or wedding one. And so, I mean, formality, sure, but a, a strict color code of black in the Western tradition means death. And like, I get that what they're going for is like chic glam, like a certain aesthetic. But I feel very strongly like, I mean, yes, weddings tend to be expensive events. It tends to be the biggest party you throw in your life. It should be something you're happy with and something that's pretty. But I, this sort of crosses the line in my mind to being more about the aesthetics of the event than about the what is happening at the event, which is you are getting married. So I mean, they seem very happy together. I wish them the best of luck in their marriage. I hope it's long lasting. I hope they're they're happy. They can be fruitful and multiply. But this, it it rubbed me the wrong way in a way I did not expect it to. Yes, and I I was likewise surprised by this stuff. And also, and I I will confess to not having consumed almost any of the content around it, and certainly not having been there or been a close confidant of one Alexander Rossi, because frankly, my skin isn't that thick. <laughs> but uh, Mr. Rossi, at least earlier in his career, um, you know, was a prominent uh, man of faith and things like that. And so I would like to put my head in the ring for getting married. If you are a, a Christian, getting married in a church. And getting married in an event space always strikes me as generic. And are you a fundraiser? Are you a wedding? Who knows? Interesting. 
So those are our thoughts on the Rossi wedding. We, of course, wish the happy couple uh, many years. Uh, we wish them uh, many, many dogs and generations of dogs, long-lived dogs, as well as a growing and happy family, uh, as well as for, more, for, more IndyCar wins and possibly another 500. We wish them all of that. To, to to come back to uh, the core theme and return once more to Formula One, uh, they were red, white, and vrooming this past weekend at the Circuit of the Americas. Every car had a star-spangled livery, and frankly, I loved it. Same. And moreover, in a uh, fitting sort of button on the imminent ascent of Andretti Cadillac into Formula One. An American driver scored <laughs> points in a Formula One race for the first time in 30 years since Michael Andretti was driving for McLaren. And now we can officially say that this year, Logan Sargent has scored more points than Daniel Ricciardo. Yes, he has. And that is that is all I want. I mean, that's not true. It's not all I want. There are many other things that I want, even in an F1 sphere. But I'm thrilled by this. As the preeminent Danny Ricardo hater, uh, I'm just so thrilled. And I, you know, he has had, Logan has had such a hard time, and I've felt so bad for this kid, you know, he obviously needed more time to come in, and I have reduced my expectations to hoping that, you know, appreciating James Val's vote of confidence uh, and, you know, ample investment in him, but uh, managing my level of met expectations and happiness to, I hope, in the home stretch of what may be his only uh, season in the pinnacle of motorsport that he have a memory that is not mere shambolic. And that he being, now has that. That being said, the way he scored points, not necessarily the most exciting or fun. True. But as Carlos Sainz will tell you, you, you take it. No matter when they give it to you, you take it. Carlos Sides, of course, having ample experience in this area. And in fact, in this same race, re achieved yet another Carlos Sides, which is code for getting a podium after everyone has gone home. <laughs> So uh, let's quickly uh, hit on this point because uh, Max won. Um, there was some excitement at the beginning. There was some this and there was some that. Um, but the top takeaway from the Circuit of the Americas race was A. Lewis Hamilton's initial uh, joy at uh, his podium. And, and the podium then, that wasn't like it wasn't like Max completely ran away with it. Mm -hmm. Like Lewis was competitive. Yes. 
And then the disqualification of Lewis Hamilton and Charles Leclerc because they rode their uh, cars, they slung them too low and they rode the curbs too much and they violated the minimum uh, car height uh, evidence uh, that is measured by the plank at the end of the race. They uh, were randomly selected for scrutineering. They failed it and thus they were disqualified. So for listeners who aren't aware of how this is done, there's a minimum height requirement that's uh, for your car throughout the race. And because it's very difficult to measure your ground clearance, uh, what they do is they have a plank, like a piece of wood under the car that is a certain thickness, 10 millimeters, I think. uh, And it has to still be 10 millimeters at the end of the race. If you are riding too low, you will literally wear away the wood and it will be too thin. And that is the test that Leclerc and Hamilton failed. What really gets me here is that they scrutineered four cars. 50% of their sample failed. And you would think, at the very least, if one Mercedes fails, you shouldn't check the other Mercedes. Or if one Ferrari fails, you should check the Ferrari. Did they do that? No, they did not. They just said, ah, well, we'll we'll DQ those guys. And we're sure everyone else was fine. They retained the right to go test everyone, to be clear. It's not like they're only allowed to check a small sample. And so the idea behind sampling, I would assume, is that you check a small sample, everyone's good. Okay, the field's probably good. You check a small sample, half of them fail. You probably ought to check the rest of the cars. I could not agree more. So, they're out. Everybody moved up two places because they were two of the top five cars. Carlos Sainz got a podium. Both Williamses were pulled into the points. And Logan Sargent scored Formula One points at the Circuit of the Americas. And so, to him, I tap the Williams cap that I am wearing. With the signature of his teammate Alex Albon, as well as Nicholas Latifi, whose hat it is. Best of luck, Logan. And this brings us to our ancient, time-honored, hallowed outro tradition. The favored motorsport factor anecdote. And mine is simply that Logan Sargent is the first American Formula One driver to score Formula One points in 30 years since Michael Andretti. Elena, what do you got? Oh, McLaren. A team that, you know, more and more people are talking about. Uh, (laughs) A favorite of mine. Uh, we think of them alongside their iconic papaya. Not orange, to be clear, papaya. Mm-hmm. And I was wondering, where did that connection come from? Where, where, when did McLaren become the papaya team? So, for longtime listeners, you might, you might remember that McLaren, the team, was founded 
many moons ago in the 60s. I want to say their first year was 66, but I'm not looking it up. So sometime around then. And at the time, they didn't have any like a, a brand identity, a visual brand identity, because people didn't talk about such things in those words. That's like they, they were Br- they were Bruce McLaren and a box of spanners and some oil <laughs> and a kiwi and so, a kiwi. Apparently, in 1968, uh, they they were sort of talking about, oh, what should our livery be for this next race? What do you think we should do? Uh, And one of Bruce's buddies recommended that they try this, like, bright orange because it was going to look really nice on TV. Even, you know, if some people were watching in black and white, it would still look nice. It would stand out. And so it made its uh, debut at the Race of Champions on March 17th, 1968. And Bruce won first time out in the new livery and the rest is history. And thus we get the papaya, a wonderful motorsport fact or anecdote. Thank you, Elena. And thank you for joining us once more for red, white and vroom podcasting. Good night.